Avere il sale and zucca. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is Italian for to have salt in a pumpkin. <laughs> it is roughly analogous to uh, the idiom, not the sharpest tool in the shed, and apparently comes from Roman times when people stored their very valuable salt in a gourd. Nice. Does F1 have salt in its pumpkin for foisting these sprint sessions upon us? Depends on who you ask. I'm Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm good. And also, my pumpkin is great. Um, I was uh, sitting next to a child and uh, the child's parents at a restaurant a few days ago. And the child looked over and I said, oh, I saw you playing with your gourd. And all of them looked at me like I had three heads (laughs) because the child was playing with a mandarin orange. (laughs) <laughs> also joining us rob zachney how are you rob not bad uh that is an awkward misidentification uh yeah it was a bit like kind of what is this crazy man so you know you're opening salvo with strangers you kind of need to keep hey, it on the even keel nice especially gourd. when a child's involved yeah how's your gourd you know yeah kinda. can you just fall back on like oh well in ireland yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in my country, we don't have mandarin oranges, so I have no idea what that is. Is that a... Is that... Is, here, have some gold. <laughs> if you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you are new to Formula One itself, uh, we've got an episode just for you. Our preseason primer episode assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that, it's episode 178. Also, this show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all of that fun stuff, uh, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. What's been going on this month, Danny? Yeah, we we put up uh, our, um, our our I guess our annual our traditional drive to survive review um, has uh, has gone live. Part two of season four went up on Friday, so we are we are done with drive to survive season four, and we are onward into the world of non drive to survive Patreon podcasts. Uh, if you have any suggestions, of course, and you're part of our Patreon, stick it in the DMs on Patreon or on the posts. I, I read them all the time. And thank you so much to all of our incredible title sponsors. We have one new one. Welcome Ash Talking Autos, joining Tanner McCleave, Bulgarian Bonbon, Mickey's O.O, at NF1T underscore NFTs, if finally I said it right, Olivia Evans, Team Blackjack, Christian Horner, Pyrites Card Castle, Erica Siegel, our Iron Station Studios, Alan McCary, uh, sorry, McCrary, telemetrydeck.com, Gnarly Goat, David Mule, Drew Stewart, Big Promble Motorsports, Bailey Foot, Abdullah Al Thani, Jason Chadwick, Abraham Getchell, Bunny Thorpe, Octo Crimes, Sniggs, Alex Goucher, Reagan, Max Voltar, Circuit Demon, Troy Stammer, Umberto Roca, William Rumpf, and Jason Kelly. It really, at this point, sounds like you're reading down the grid for the Indy 500, where there's like, <laughs> you know, 97 cars. Yeah, it's like a futuristic Indy 500 where there's kind of like also aliens and and like <laughs> right. some animals that have gained sentience in the in the intervening thousand years. Yeah, it's a, it's a real murderer's row of beautiful people who help this podcast keep going. But I, I do think we need to put a limit on it because it's getting to the stage. <laughs> so many names. Yeah, uh, shout out to uh, those those names in there who are also crossovers with uh, 
Brad and Will made a tech pod. I was listening to that recently and they oh, shouted really? out there. Yeah, they're patrons oh, and there's some crossover. It's great. That's very cool. Yeah, I bet um, there's a couple of people in there. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's, uh, since this is a pre-race episode, we do not have a race to talk about uh, except for the upcoming one. But before we get to that, let's talk some news. Uh, we do have some fallout, I guess, from the last race, Rob, about specifically the safety car. What is going on <laughs> over there? Yeah, so we talked about how people were having trouble getting heat in their tires and the restarts were extremely dicey uh, for some for some of the drivers out there uh, because they felt they'd lost so much pace behind the safety car. What I hadn't realized is that it's not it's not the safety car, the concept that the drivers specifically have an issue with, though. They've kind of complained about pace for, for years, no matter what's out there. Uh, but... They have an especially like like they have a nemesis safety car, and it is the Aston Martin safety car. Remember, this always <laughs> used to be a Mercedes AMG uh, sports car that would lead the grid around. That was the that was the safety car. Uh, now uh, I think this is the first year they're doing it. Um, I think it's the first it's, year, didn't they? Since they introduced the two of them. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I can't remember right. when it was introduced, but I know they made a little bit of a fanfare around the fact that they were going to split duties between the Mercedes safety car and then an Aston Martin uh, safety car. And so Autosport did kind of a comparison: like, are these cars meaningfully different? Because the drivers are specifically calling out that the Aston uh, is significantly slower. Uh, McLaren Russell, uh, according to this. Uh, piece by Jonathan Noble over at Autosport uh, have indicated the thing is five seconds per lap slower um, than when the the Mercedes is out there. That is significant. So uh, they looked at, they looked at the two cars and for one thing, uh, Bird Mylander has talked about how good uh, the, the Mercedes, uh, the, the Mercedes is. Um, he's the safety car driver and presumably the driver for both yes. for the safety car no matter which car is the safety car right and there are no quotes from him about the aston martin vantage uh he's using <laughs> merely quotes about how fucking awesome the amg gt black series uh car is that, that he drives from for mercedes uh they both have uh Four liter uh, turbo V8s. The the Merc has a twin turbo, but it's actually like there are some elements of the stat line that do seem kind of startling uh, when it comes to the difference between the two cars. Uh, the the Mercedes has seven hundred thirty horsepower. The Aston Martin has five hundred twenty eight. Hmm. Torque is eight hundred uh, newton meters uh, for the for the Merc six eighty five uh, for the Aston. The zero to sixty uh, three point two for the Merc, uh, and then the Vantage three point five. Which, to be clear, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you do get down to like zero to sixty times in like high performance cars, those tenths come hard. Uh, so what 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 uh, speed are the F one cars doing under safety car? Like it's higher than sixty, right? Right. It's got to um, be like eighty or ninety or something, right? Uh, more than that. Um, yeah. Really, right. really, because I, I think like I, I think for them like going down the straights, they're still getting up like north of a hundred. Mm. Um, but the because remember like uh, Martin Brunel has talked about how the safety car is basically doing what would be 
hot laps for someone driving a sports car. Um, <laughs> if you're in the safety car, it'd be like careering around those cars. That's my right. favorite and part it, of it. It's only you, slow because at- the F1 cars are, are there for, for comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The F1 cars look like they are crawling around the track, but the safety car always looks like it's doing the best that it can. Like it's barely hanging on. Right. And then here, and here's maybe the, the most eye opening stat. And maybe this is the root of why the drivers are losing their minds. Uh, the Mercedes, uh, there's there's downforce at 125 miles an hour uh, as a stat given here. The Mercedes generates 249 kilograms of downforce uh, when going 125 miles an hour. The Aston Martin Vantage is 155 kilograms of downforce, mm. and what that means is like one it's of not these cars like the Mercedes one though. Pardon? It's not porpoising <laughs> like the Mercedes safety car though. <laughs> Uh, thank God, ni- neither of them are built to current aero, uh, ground effect aero uh, <laughs> regulations. But yeah, so like there is a significant. It sounds like that is a significant performance different di- differential between the two safety cars. Um, and the FIA has been like, we're happy with both cars. It's, it's working out great. The drivers aren't, and it's very funny uh, that. I am sure Aston Martin pays for this like branding opportunity, oh, yeah. this exposure, and what they appear to have paid for is to be the safety car that the drivers badmouth uh, and talk about. Uh, Verstappen called it a turtle, which doesn't help because the the Aston is green. Um, so <laughs> oh, like, no, that's gonna stick. Yeah, and so like you got a team just wallowing out there uh, every mm-hmm. every race. And now even the safety car, people are like, hey, this is the this is the shitty safety car. Bring the real safety car back. Uh, just brutal times for Aston Martin. Yeah, that's that's all the wrong. You know, they say there's no bad news or whatever. There's no, you no know, bad PR. No bad PR. I don't know about this one, guys. Because um, now I'm just going to look like now I'm like Googling which which safety car is it this weekend. Um <laughs> I've no, it doesn't seem to be a good resource for finding that one. Um, although if you type in Aston Martin safety car, the only thing that comes up is turtle in quotes a thousand times. So <laughs> guess it did stick. Uh, well, uh, speaking of bad PR, this next uh, article here from oh, Autosport, no. pretty funny. Uh, it's rich as, energy, is it? <laughs> as, as we all may recall, um, uh, the Haas team was sponsored right before the season was about to start by Eurokali, a Russian fertilizer company um, owned in large part by one Dmitry Mazepin, a Russian oligarch whose son was, again, until this, just before the start of the season, going to drive for Haas. Uh, but then Russia invaded Ukraine and Haas dropped Eurokali imme- with immediate effect and booted his son uh uh, the Nikita Mazepin out of the team uh, and installed Kevin Magnuson. Um, Eurokali is like, hey, we gave you $13 million uh, <laughs> as part of the contract for sponsorship. You need to give that back. Haas says, no, thank you. Uh, this is from Autosport. The American-owned team insists it had a right to end the deal because of a clause in the sponsorship agreement which stated that Eurocali does not, quote, injure, bring into dispute, ridicule, or lessen the public reputation, goodwill, of favorable image of Haas. And I would argue that oh, that's a certainly rich happened. Clause. 
Uh, yeah, yeah right. good, good, 100%. Yeah, good point. I would argue that Haas came out of this looking real good. Well, uh, they, they Haas themselves might even um, disagree with you, Danny, because I think the funniest part of this article is that uh, Haas not only is not giving their $13 million back, it is demanding 8 million euros more uh, for what it says is loss of profits it believes would have been made if the Eurocali deal had continued. That's wow. $8.6 million. Remind me not to go to the Eurocali stall at the bazaar because they are they are good. They are mean negotiators. That is, They are coming at them hard. Yeah. That's wild. And as part of that... Uh, as part of that, they unless they get that $8.6 million, um, Autosport says here, Haas has also made clear that it will not fulfill a clause in its original contract for Eurocali to be given one of Mazepin's 2021 F1 cars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, Nikita was doing the, the rounds this week, I think, because there was a couple of articles about how he was on hiatus uh, from Formula One and that he's, you know, taking a it's it's a break, a year break that he wasn't expecting. But he's, you know, working hard to get back into the sport because he's been in motorsport his entire life. And good luck to him. Dreams are dreams are important, I guess. Yeah, that's well, wild. You can tell, yeah. though, as Rob said, they have they have gone through the. You know the di- the difficulty of rich energy. They clearly learned <laughs> right. some lessons learned, during that yes. particular. <laughs> what is going? I can't wait for Haas's next. Like it feels like there could be a TV show about Haas's sponsorship at this stage. It's just outrageous. Well, a, what are they going to write for season three? Uh, there is a book coming out. Um, oh yeah, about the rich energy saga uh, by um, Alanis King, King and yep. uh, Elizabeth Blackstock, uh, awesome. which I will post a link to the pre order. In the show notes, um, because I immediately day one I signed up for that. Um, we, should, we should do an audiobook recording just for free, <laughs> just so. or maybe a book club Patreon episode. Oh yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, from one controversial thing to the other, uh, race fans has a good article here about some minor alterations that F1 has made to its sprint session and i call it the sprint session because one of those changes uh has been to switch from calling it sprint qualifying to the sprint session Mm. uh whoa so not sprint race no i mean they they downplayed initially they downplayed sprint race as a concept uh when it came out because they didn't want to detract from the fact that the real race you know they didn't want to say the real race versus the sprint race or uh lessen any of that uh shine um so uh, this is especially prescient because we are ha- uh, this weekend. Will we will have our first sprint race session? Sorry. Should I know um, we do it in the preseason primer, but maybe a quick little recap for people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go for it for sprint. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so um, sprint races exist in other uh, racing series. They're they're pretty common. They generally. Uh, consist of shorter races usually with no no pit or one pit um and then oftentimes they're used in those series um in formula two for example uh, as a way of sort of 
um, shaking up the pack for the other race that weekend. Um, in Formula 2's case, they do sprint races and then they'll do a feature race and the grid will be, they'll do like a reverse grid for the top eight drivers that end in, in the sprint race. And there's lots of different formats for this. You know, racing is always trying to find ways to increase competition, etc., uh, etc. Et um was it last year or was it the year before? I forget when we started doing these. Uh, I, think I think it was it was last year. Last year we did yeah. three of them um, yes. in F1. And basically what it means is instead of them doing qualifying on a Saturday, you know, the free practice one and two on Friday, uh, free practice uh, three in the morning and then qualifying in the afternoon and then the race the, on the Sunday, which is you know, the grid is made up from qualifying. Instead, they sort of mix it up where it's it's free practice one and free practice... Is a free practice... No, it's qualifying then. Yeah. And qualifying then on the, Friday. Qualifying Friday. And then they do the sprint race on Saturday morning. Mm, isn't this? Yeah, I think oh, there's one more qualify uh um sorry practice session you're right sorry there's one more practice session in the in the morning they don't yeah. re- reverse those and then in the afternoon i needed a primer and then in the <laughs> afternoon they do the what was sprint qualifying which is basically a shortened race on the track um and then they would set the grid based on that race so if you qualified in fifth but then managed to get to first for the end of this sprint qualifying sorry i shouldn't say race then you'd be uh, first, uh, you'd be in pole position. Well, I guess that's what we're talking about. You'd that's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, first for, for the race. Yeah, so, and this was a whole, it's a, it's a whole initiative um, that F1 is trying to get people to watch uh, more F1 across the whole weekend, both on television and most importantly for the race promoters in person. Because yeah. if you just have practice on Friday, no one really wants to go to that or watch it on TV. But if you put qualifying on Friday, then you got the sprint on Saturday and the race on Sunday, well then people might tune in. The problem is you can't you have to make the sprint matter to the drivers because if it's like, oh, this is just for fun, then everyone will just say, mm, I just I'll retire and then not, you know, risk any damage to my car or anything like that. Um, So thus the qualifying sets the grid for the sprint and the finish for the sprint sets the grid for the race. So if you crash in the sprint, uh uh-oh. Yeah, bad news. And there are points on offer as well for the sprint, but they are meager. Well, that was changed. Um, so last year it was three points for the winner and then two for second place and one point for third place. Now it's eight points, um, for, uh, the winner of the sprint. And then it runs down to one point for eighth place. So eight, seven, six, five, four, three. So there's more points on offer. So you want to get into the top eight. Um, but the, one of the (laughs) sort of, uh, things that got people mad especially the old hats of Formula One. When the sprint got introduced, Formula One said, uh, the winner of the sprint gets pole position. And everyone's mm. like, wait a minute. The, whoever wins qualifying should get pole. That's, that's more important. So people got mad. Now Formula One is saying, you know what? Yeah. Whoever wins qualifying gets pole position, which is uh, the opposite of what the FIA regulations say, as pointed out here by racefans.net, article 41.4A states, the grid for the race will be drawn up based on the final classification of the sprint session with the driver finishing first 
on pole position, which I think, and I would love to get your guys' input on this very silly semantic argument. Uh, you start the race on pole position, or the, whoever starts first in the race is pole position because uh, that whole name comes from the giant pole that existed in a lot of old racetracks uh, that would show in lights the order of drivers. So ah. the top of the pole is the pole position you want to be in. And that's, right. It's where you start the race. Because if you qualify in first, even just ignoring the sprint, if you qualified in first and then you got a penalty, you don't get pole position. Okay. You don't start on pole. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Danny? I think this is the most Formula One discussion possible. Yes. This is, I love this so much. This is, if you are new to this podcast, welcome to our hell. Because this is what, <laughs> this is why I get up in the morning to record these podcasts. Um, these semantic arguments like this. Yeah, it's, it's, the problem is the sprint race exists because it's right. just created this problem. I do think, I can see how for the drivers doing the quality lap and pushing for pole because they get pole they, they're told they get pole right there to them that means pole position and i told i can i can see the argument for that i always thought calling the sprint race thing pole position was kind of funny like it's not like oh you got pole position for the weekend even though it's the like the second most important race of the right. of the week i i wondered why there wasn't two pole positions why there wasn't pole position for the sprint qualifying and pole position for the race like i mean there effectively if, if is the, like yeah there should be right if the, the qualifying person is who starts of, first yeah the the, the the qualifying is just like you know the the means by which it is achieved largely um you know although if all if 20 if 19 drivers decided not to participate in qualifying the one driver that did would get pole so it, it's i don't know yeah i'm with you I, I i think i think there should be two poles and there should be uh, on both races and the qualifying yeah, I, is just academic i completely understand why people are upset because they want qualifying to matter uh and it seems silly that the sprint race results in a pole position but, but, um, i mean qualifying still matters a, the, with yeah, a rose well, by any other name drew <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like <laughs> the fact that it's uh, that this, the winner of the sprint is called pole position isn't an argue argument for qualifying being pole position is argument not to have the sprint. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, well, yeah, I can I can see the logic there. I, I think we all agree. It's well, yeah. Rob, I'm interested in what you think, but it, it sounds like he's got to come in there and say, yeah, it should be quali- whoever gets <laughs> the fastest lap. Yeah, it's based on my position. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it is. I think the sprint race is a weird thing uh, because sprint session, Rob. Sprint session, <laughs> right? It, it's just like to me, like pole position is so much about like who got the best results in the uh, like fast lap uh, qualifying. That yeah, the sprint race sets a grid, uh, but like. The grid that rolled off from qualifying, like that, had a pole, and then we reshuffle it for the race. That's that's kind of my view. The the, the whole like you win the f the, you win the sprint, and then saying, well, and this person also has pole position. I don't know. It's a it's a weird thing. Like um, we already we already had the quality session, so I I do like the distinction. I think it's I think it's useful uh, to sort of set apart what happens in the 
uh, like timing sheets versus what happens in the uh, sprint race. Um, I I think it is this. So much of this comes down to the awkward messaging around the sprint uh, in 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 so in, in so many ways. Uh, the the fact that they're trying to treat it like a qualifying race. Um, and, and now with the extra points, you're kind of giving up the giving up the game a little bit there. Whereas, like as a way to set the grid, it's not particularly satisfying. As a way to get in an extra like little mini race, uh, not bad. But you need to sweeten the pot uh, for the teams to actually give it their uh, to to give it a good go. Yeah. Uh, sound off in the comments below. <laughs> yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Shift F one podcast at gmail Fill my inbox. I dare you. Yes. Uh, well, now that we've uh, laid that very confusing foundation for the sprint, Danny, <laughs> do you want to take us to this weekend's race? Yes, we're off to Imola, or as we're supposed to call it since 1988, Autodromo Internationale Enzo Adini Ferrari. Uh, what was sort of known for many years as the San Marino Grand Prix Um Something that we learned a number of years ago was not because it was in San Marino. <laughs> San Marino being one of Italy, it's Europe's weird, man. And we have all these weird little sort of fake countries and small countries hidden in the mountains like Andorra and Monaco, tax havens. And San Marino is kind of one of the, Italy went through a lot of shit, man. There was, there was city states. There was, you know, there was a lot going on. They got the Vatican. San Marino is doing its own thing up there in the Appian Mountains or whatever. And and uh, uh, basically, the problem was the naming convention of Formula One. There was already an Italian Grand Prix. They wanted to do one in Imola. It's a really good circuit. Um, it has history and roots with Ferrari. And uh, there was already an Italian Grand Prix. So instead of messing with those names and calling it something weird, they named it after the nearby San Marino. Uh, but it's not actually in San Marino. Um, so... Uh, it's been around for a long time. It is uh, sort of beloved in the classic era of F1. It does have the uh, rather um, unfortunate uh, d- d- distinction of being a track in which uh, two racers perished in the 90s. Uh, of course, Ayrton Senna and uh, Ronan Ratzenberger. Um, and that is where the biggest change uh, of the, the the track is probably most notable to people who watch those. Um, the very fast left-hander at Tamburillo, which is where uh, Senna went off in, into a wall, has been turned into a, a chicane of sorts, you know, a left-right-hander. And, and it's where we saw most of the incidents occur last year, which we're going to get to in a second, because I think that's going to be an important um distinction we might see with the current crop of cars uh it's a 63 lap race uh just shy of five kilometers or three miles thank you very much drew mm-hmm. um uh it's a uh, it's an interesting circuit because the drivers really like it even though it's not exactly a great spot for overtaking uh, there's a famous corner in the middle there called Accio minerale which they take almost flat out left-hander downhill it's really awesome and then they have to do a hard break into into a, a right-hander. One of the reasons why the drivers like this, because I watched, I got way into um, Nico Rosberg's track walks a while back, and I've started to watch all his, uh, where he goes like turn by turn and talks a lot about the composition of corners and stuff. And one of the reasons why the drivers tend to like this one is that there's a lot of turns that are basically uncontestable, where 
if you have three turns coming up, like a left-hander, right-hander, and then the next one is going to be like a slow turn, left or right, probably left because it's clockwise, um, or kind of clockwise. If you were, if you're going up to one of those, you can basically concede the first turn. You can not really defend on the first one because the second one is impossible to overtake on and as long as you hit that one by the time you get to the third one it's not that hard to hold position so drivers are kind of not that under pressure in a large part of this one and they can take the optimal racing line or braking line pretty much a lot of the time in these sectors because they're not worried about somebody diving up the inside or maybe setting up for the next turn. So it's one of the reasons I think the drivers like it is that they're not under pressure a lot here and it's more of a sort of a fun roller coaster. Um, The one place they are most certainly under pressure though is uh, what is technically known as turn two um, but is basically the turn at the end of the start finish straight. So uh, a couple of changes happened to the track in terms of the the opening to the straight was slightly widened. The pit entry was also moved further back. Um, but the composition of this track has always meant that the start-finish straight is where you've had most of the overtakes. Uh, it's also a DRS zone. It's the only one on the track. The detection zone is uh, two turns beforehand. So you're going to see a lot of drivers getting real close and then setting up on that uh, final turn because they've already gotten... DRS before the penultimate turn um, and then pushing out from there. Now, last year, arguably all of the incidents happened here. On the start of the race, you may remember Hamilton Verstappen having a touch when they tried to get around the, uh, what is technically turn three, but it's the turn directly after the turn at the end of the straight. Um, This is also where Valtteri Bottas and George Russell had that big crash where Russell didn't really know, seemed to know where he was overtaking. Uh, trying again, as we talked last week about that whole problem last year where you really just had to send it and 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 break. It was too hard to overtake in earnest on these straights. And, and the only way drivers were able to do this and a big reason for stopping ended up having such a good la- year last year when it came to overtaking was because you just had to send it and, and try and get the car slow down as quickly as possible and cut off the other driver. Um, Obviously, we're not seeing that this year. We're seeing cars follow closer, which at a track like Imola, imagine last year's cars in Imola now, what what we know. They could not follow each other. This is a track where the cars are very fast. There's only a couple of areas where they slow down quite a lot. That middle section is super fast. Cars can stick to each other here, as long as there's not like a crazy amount, you know, the the heat isn't so much of an issue, and obviously the downforce isn't so much of an issue. So I think they're going to be a lot closer Kind of like what we saw with uh, Jeddah, the A-B test of this year and last year with Jeddah. They'll be a lot closer coming out of that last turn. And I think they'll be getting overtakes done uh, earlier on that straight. Whether or not there are overtakes in other parts of the track, that's trickier. Um, I- I'm not really sure we have... The, the the corners on this track are not great for overtaking on. They're, it's just not wide. It's it's an old track. Uh, and also, there aren't that many straights between these turns. They're kind of looping. And one of the things that doesn't come across on the, the, the sort of circuit map, as it were, is that it's quite hilly here. It kind of goes up and down and undulates. And there's lots of like turns on apexes and stuff like that. And it's an old bumpy track. And there's been water table movement. And so it's kind of all... It's one of those ones. So um, also very interested to see how the car's porpoise considering uh, that stuff too. Yeah, awesome. Uh, by the way, this is the Emilia Romana Grand Prix. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's not the Italian Grand Prix because we've already got one of those 
later in the season at Monza. Uh, so they needed a, a different name. And that's the region, right? Emilia Romana? Yes, uh, that's, that's, what, that's in- what they ended up settling <clears throat> on. Yeah, because it's the yeah. region. They decided not to call it San Marino anymore, which I quite liked. I feel like we don't ever talk about San Marino. Uh, well, it's a region, everyone, that might see a little precipitation Ooh, this weekend. Well, that's, I don't know what rain is in Italian. Uh, on Friday, qualifying day, uh, at around qualifying time, it looks to be about 60% chance Ooh. of rain. Uh, cool temperatures as well. Only 59 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 Celsius. Uh, and wind, uh, not so bad, nine miles an hour, 14 kilometers an hour. Um, pretty similar, uh, wind speed on sprint day, although a different direction and, uh, actually similar precipitation, maybe about 40% chance, uh, warmer temps though, 21 degrees Celsius or 69 degrees, uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, then... Uh, slightly cooler, 64 uh, Fahrenheit and 18 Celsius on race day with a precipitation of around 35%. Okay. Um, stronger winds, again, a different direction, 21 kilometers an hour, 13 miles an hour. Uh, and there's a little icon here on uh, weather.com, Google Weather, for lightning. Oh, boy. Well, which would probably red flag a race. Yes, so, I suspect so. Careful. That's- out there a little bit tricky yeah and it is it is mountains so those percentages i always feel a little bit better about when we're in you know the world of relief rain there's so many opportunities for rain to happen in mountains um please please we'll we'll have some of that it's not that long a track though we should it, it's not like a spa where it could be raining on one end and not on another end it's not that big mm-hmm. um it's kind of keeps close to itself as well as opposed to spa which decides to, to you know go halfway around belgium um but it's uh yeah it'll be really interesting i'm i'm i'm, I'm also interesting how the sprint race uh works with regards to the cars we have now because last year there was a sort of an element of chaos with it where generally the cars were qualifying in a set sort of order last year there was a bit of movement but you could kind of guess within two cars where people were going to be or certainly where teams were going to be whereas this year jeez louise it's just like yeah. some of this stuff has really rolled the dice so i'm wondering if it'll it, there's a world in which it could act like a sieve like an extra sieve where where it just kind of gets us back to a, a more familiar order for for race day but there's always the possibility of something mad happening you know last year we had lots of crashes on that opening or we had a lot of contact in that opening you had that weird bit where latifi went off and tried to rejoin the track and rejoined into mazepin um so yeah there's always an opportunity for something funny to happen here but yeah i'm just interested I'm, I'm yeah especially I, I hate these week breaks especially at the start of a season i want more races <laughs> well uh let's run down the standings here heading into a weekend where there are two opportunities to get points uh, Charlotte Claire is on top of the Drivers' Championship with 71 points, uh, ahead of second place George Russell with 37. That's a big gap. Uh, Carlos Sainz is in third with 33. Sergio Perez is in fourth with 30. And we've got Lewis Hamilton in fifth 
with 28 points. Max Verstappen in sixth place with 25 points. Esteban Ocon has 20. Lando Norris has 16. Kevin Magnussen has 12, tied with Valtteri Bottas in ninth. Daniel Ricciardo is in 11th place with eight points. Then we've got Pierre Gasly with six. Yuki Tsunoda with four. Fernando Alonso with two. Joe Guan Yu in 15th place with one point, tied with Alex Albon. And then we've got Mick Schumacher, Lance Stroll, Nico Hulkenberg, Nicholas Latifi, and Sebastian Vettel with zero. Vettel, by the way, not even on the Formula1.com driver standings because he hasn't technically finished a race yet. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Huh. In the constructor standings, Ferrari is on top of the 104 points to Mercedes's 65. Red Bull Racing is in third with 55. Then we've got McLaren in fourth with 24 and Alpine in fifth with 22. Behind them, Alfa Romeo has 13. Gene Haas and team have 12 points. Alfa Tauri's got 10. Williams has one. And Aston Martin, Aramco Mercedes with zero. Yikes. Yes. El uh, if, you, if you'd like to join the standings tables yourselves, listeners, you can do Ooh. so in our fantasy league. And you can join using the link uh, in the show notes. Um, and that takes us to emails, Danny. Yes, shiftf1podcast.gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. We got a bunch of emails. I'm going to take this first one from Ross. Hi, guys. Greetings from London. Greetings from London. My voice just automatically transitioned to London. I was wondering if you could clear up a question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like this. No, uh, that's been bugging me for a little while. It struck me that we're seeing a lot of changes to F1 liveries at the moment, e.g. the pink Alpine livery and the special Gulf McLaren livery at Monaco last year. I noticed that during preseason testing, during the height of the Mazepin drama around Russian sanctions, Haas were able to quickly remove much of the branding that gave the car a distinctly Russian flavor, and changed to a plain livery almost overnight. My question is, do how do the liveries actually work? I presume liveries are more specific than just stickers on the bodywork, but if so... Uh, how were Haas able to remove all coloring from the car so quickly? Did they just have uh, have spare plane parts lying around? What about when one driver is sick and the reserve driver steps in? How did they change the number on the car? So I, I did a lot of... I, I kind of knew some of this, but I wasn't sure about other parts of it, so I, I did a bit of a dive over the past couple of days to, to check it out. And the answer is it's kind of... It varies. There's a, there's a lot of different stuff. So some, some of the... Parts of the bodywork, like, for instance, the Ferrari, which is red, right? So that's factory uh, painted um, where, you know, one thing to remember is that the, a lot of these teams have lots of pieces of these. The bodywork isn't the most expensive part of this car. Um, it's also the part of the car that gets dinged up the most during races. Cars often finish with elements of the bodywork partially damaged or maybe they had stresses on from that race and they replace it so when they go into a race weekend they do have extra pieces of bodywork i don't think they have them like sort of solo cup you know stacked on top of each other to like be pulled off but they do have access to them um some of the cars are painted like i said maybe in in one go like that the detail on these cars is different for each um each team though some of them uh, are hand painted a lot of them i think mercedes's car is still hand painted which means they have people there um to do some of this stuff they also a lot of the teams have a sticker person whose job it is to apply the stickers so a lot of the uh, stuff on the cars uh, sometimes logos for instance will be painted sometimes they'll be done uh, on the the print itself a lot of them though are 
uh, stickers are applied. And then what you'll sometimes see, because there literally is actually an aerodynamic issue when you add stickers to the car, because they can create drag, even if it's only this tiny little millimeter, is that often what they'll do is they'll lacquer over them, um, over the the top of the stickers. Um, That said... In some instances, like you said, the changing the the car number or something like that, it's as easy as them applying a coat of whatever it is. I don't think it's white spirits, but something to basically remove the lacquer, take off the sticker, and then reapply it. Um, so it, it it changes piece by piece. Obviously, there's like elements like the front wings, which will come largely, you know, finished and whatnot. Um, but uh, there are the teams do it differently. There's a cost associated with it. And ultimately, it comes down to like how many sponsors they have, what the look of delivery is, that type of thing. But yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, not just the design, but the actual application of stickers and paint and uh, assemblage uh, of these things. And as you probably are aware, they do evolve during the season. So they need to be dynamic like this because oftentimes a piece of engine will be added and they'll have to change the look of one of the parts of the the car and they'll have to change where the painting line is. So um, the, you know, even in this world of like the sort of the, the weird situation with Haas or whatnot, um, that's sort of a, like a really big obvious change, but there are little changes happening to these cars with regards to their liveries uh, throughout the season. Dan, I just want to point out an article that uh, was posted today on Autosport.com. Um, so, as we know, the a, a light car is a fast car, mm. right? Um, and teams want to be as close to the minimum weight limit as possible. Um, but a, a thing that uh, has happened over the course of the years is that F1 cars have gotten heavier and heavier and heavier, so that... Um, margin is more and more important. <clears throat> we saw the teams all saying like, listen, we're really close here, but we would love if you could bump up the minimum weight by three, three kilograms. Um, and uh, that was unanimous and it was passed. So now the car's limit is uh, 798 kilograms. Um, but still some teams are struggling to reach that. And so they're shaving weight on their liveries. Oh, Wow. Yes, Aston Martin is from the article revealed that it had removed green painted areas of its car to save around 350 grams, <laughs> uh, which I think is like a cup of coffee. That's wild. Um, McLaren's also stripping back uh, orange paint from its airbox, um, and Williams is the latest team uh, to uh, strip down some painted areas around the side pods and airbox that were previously in dark blue or gloss black. So yeah, it is a matter of grams out there in F1. I wonder if this is why before the season I noticed that everyone seemed to be doing contrasting black. Is that just unpainted carbon fiber? Is the new <laughs> oh. is the new aesthetic where it's yeah, like maybe. we're just folding into our livery uh, to it's a, it's a high contrast material and it doesn't it doesn't have the weight cost. Yeah, good good Wild. point. Yeah, I'd love to talk to. I bet I bet there's like, if you talk to somebody who's like doing all that stuff, I bet there's loads of little war stories like what Rob oh. said. Like, oh, like, sponsors? Could you imagine? Like, oh man, Duracell was just hounding me. They like, said they uh, wanted to be two millimeters higher on the car. I read. Yeah, I read there was somebody that, that where they had they had special stickers as well that they'd put over parts of this of the stickers that were on the air side on the front of the car side just to make sure that they didn't lift up like back in the day um mm. so they wouldn't create any weird drag uh, wow. yeah it's mad it's crazy uh 
Rob, you want to take this next one from Alan? Yeah. Uh, Alan writes, With the current financial obligations being so steep for a new F1 team to join the grid, and with outfits such as Andretti Automotive and Audi having such a difficult time trying to join, let alone all the pushback from current teams not wanting to let someone join, unless they really are a serious, uh, a.k.a. have the financial capital of at least a small country before applying uh, level of backer, do you think that we're done seeing new teams join? Will anyone, even, even with the financing like Audi, want to foot the initial entry bill in order to join? Or will we just be stuck with teams being approached for buyout uh, for the next few years or even decades? Great question. Uh, I think there's a couple things. Let's not conflate them. Uh, Andretti and Audi Porsche, uh, essentially two VW group, uh, like in entry bids that are under under review. And they're not formal bids yet. Two really different scales of operation, right? So what's happening with Audi and Porsche uh, is that they are sitting on the on the working group that is deciding technical regulations for 2026 engines. Uh, and they're like having a seat at the table to see whether it aligns with their strategic vision, uh, what they want their brand, their their engineering to be pointed towards. There are that is related to these constant Sturm und Drang in F1 around who gets to have access to testing time. Nobody wants to join F1 just to eat shit uh, and get your clock cleaned by the incumbents uh, who've already done all the research. So there is a recognition uh, that to avoid sort of a repeat of Honda just getting massacred as they came in, uh, you want to give the new entrants more time to work out the kinks and build up a competitive engine. Uh there's already a lot of gamesmanship happening around that. Um, Autosport wrote a piece about some of these uh, so, some of these uh, tensions, where like Red Bull was going to be doing more from their in-house shop, but went back on that uh, to continue sourcing for from Honda this year because Red Bull wants, when their engine comes in, to be a new entrant uh, to allow for them to have greater testing. Uh, resources. So they are working oh, wow. to classify themselves that way. Huh. Uh, Dieter Renkin uh, over at, he used to be uh, one of the best writers over at Race Fans. Now he's sort of doing his own thing over at RacingNews365.com. Um, wrote a piece this week about the VW group has a history of like hemming and hawing on like, maybe we'll come in F1 and we'll sit here on the technical working groups and they keep drag and they drag their feet. They run out the clock and then they decide maybe mm. not to come in. Uh, F1 has already made a lot of changes to sort of make it a more interesting uh, space for them. Uh, they had been eager to dump the MGUH. Uh, from the technical regulations. Um, and so the teams agreed to do that, largely being pushed uh, by VW. Everyone's very eager to get a deep-pocketed manufacturer with two really major racing brands uh, you know, under their belt. Everyone wants this to happen. VW kind of knows this uh, and are continuing to sort of, uh, you know, stand stand at the door to win more concessions. Uh, but to Rankin's point, it's not even clear after a point what they are, what are they looking for? Um, it, they, they are 
sort of indicating this too soon to make a choice, uh, but there's no longer a clear roadmap for like what will get them to sign on the dotted line. So, and and that's just important to note because like for operations like Andretti, it really comes down to it's expensive to launch a new team for operations like the new manufacturers, the entry cost uh, to, to join with that $200 million uh, anti-dilution fee that's really small potatoes next to the scale of things. It's it's really more about how serious are we going to be uh, about this, uh, and does it fit? Does it fit what we're going to do? I think we're going to see more new teams uh, for a couple reasons. One is that like F one is an interesting space right now. If you are a luxury auto manufacturer, I think you want to be here. Um, yeah. There are just not that many places to showcase these high end brands and make them look cool and get like new eyes on them. Uh, I think like Ferrari makes no secret of the fact that the Ferrari brand is like half built on just their iconic styling for their streetcars and half built on racing. Um, Porsche historically, like they sell with their cars, the fact that, Hey, the Porsche 911 dominates sports car racing around the world so i think both these brands have have reason to want to get in here and i think that's why you're going to see more more auto manufacturers uh try to crack into f1 the dilution thing i think is going to be an obstacle for operations like andretti um however it's wild to say this 200 million ain't what it used to be like it's 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 weird to think about the, the amount of like credit is easy right now you can do you can raise a lot of money really easily uh inflation is real like the operating budgets people are playing around with are significantly different than they were now and that's a hardship but also there is an element of revenues uh tend to be up so i think like two three years ago that 200 million dollar anti-dilution fee was like well that basically kills uh, a lot of your your operators, uh, your independent operators' interest in getting this done. I suspect in the next couple of years, there's a lot of people who, with whatever investment backing they've got, they'll be able to swing that. Um, and so I think I think we'll get more new teams. Uh, I think we'll also see a, a few of them fold real fast. This was when HRT Inversion came in. It's one thing to get get in the door, then you have yeah. to be able to compete. Nobody wants to stick around <laughs> and get their asses kicked. Terrific. Thanks so much for that, Rob. Uh, very insightful. Yeah. Um, that's why I don't answer those questions myself. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll give myself a tricky question so I can give Rob that one because he's going to know. He's going to know what to talk about. Um, Drew, yes. I think you're next up. Could you answer With... this question from Scott, please? That's right. Yes, yeah, Scott says, quick question. We've had a few exciting races this season so far, but have they been good races? Bahrain had some good on-track battles, but Saudi and Australia mostly kept were mostly kept interesting by pit stops and failures, which I'm not sure is good, quote-unquote, racing. Uh, interesting question. I This is where I come down on this, and let me know if you guys agree. Um, I will classify a race as good or not based on everything in aggregate, uh, and that includes pit stop you know, malfunctions, um, you know, incidents, uh, things like that. Just, I think they all contribute to the story. 
even if it's like a car just breaking down that can cause a yellow flag that can cause you know you know the butterfly effect right um and i think you i guess it's a matter of opinion whether a track contributes to those kinds of things um but i think it's it's tough to draw the line and so i just i just kind of uh, uh put it all together and in fact i started doing this last year because i i wanted to have a good um sense of each track and whether it can you know resulted in good races uh and so i started rating them myself i just have oh, like nice. an excel spreadsheet uh on my <laughs> phone here and uh the, the a race can get one of five ratings uh a zero, which is a, just a not applicable, which uh, Spa got last year because it was gotcha. rained out. Um, uh, the worst rating is a procession. That's a one. Okay. <laughs> a, a two is a strategy race. Okay. So tires uh, generally. Yeah. You know, a, a race made interesting only if you're really watching closely and are a Formula One nerd, but maybe right. not to people who are just kind of watching it for um just pure entertainment value. to be clear those two categories that was my introduction those that was my introduction to f1 i watched right. for years when there was <laughs> yeah. nothing you would rate above a strategy race unless like miraculous yeah. shit happened <laughs> yes then a, a rating of three is entertaining nice. uh, and then a rating of four is bonkers bonkers i love yeah. it which is just like, wow, I didn't know this could happen in Formula. I mean, we had a lot of those last year. I, I rated Saudi Arabia, Italy, and Russia as bonkers. Not a complete list, though. I was oh, sort Russia. of sporadic. God, the final um, Sochi race. That was a good race, but mostly because of the rain. Yes. Yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I, like there is something to be said about a, I, I judge whether or not a race was good or enjoyable by how engaged i am in it and you can have it's the same as any sport like you can have two nfl teams who have just like shockingly bad defenses but the game is amazing as a result of it is that good football you could argue not you know because because they're just like porous but like is it fun yeah Yeah. i mean yeah you're right there will always be a killjoy who is going to be like They'll see a a, a Rams Chiefs style game. Remember that a couple of years ago? Be like, I don't know if that's good football. Shut up! You're right. It's great football. Shut up! It's great. Who cares? Look at this shit. Touchdowns coming from everywhere. And, and like most sports are like that. You know what I mean? Where you can have an absolute slobber knocker, and it's just like you know, it, it, it's you know, two two bad MMA fighters who are just trying to put on a show so they get to the next prom- promotion. To like a like a lower division soccer team playing a higher division soccer team, just like parking the bus it's not good football but it's like it's fun to watch i'll say this for scott though i think scott is on to something because i think there has been better racing particularly in the midfield than maybe scott is giving credit for however i think scott is right that the failures specifically and just various things that are reshuffling the like leading order of f1 uh the first like you know 12 13 positions keeps making the racing interesting but it is like it is because things are happening that like under normal running order like if if engines weren't failing at quite such a higher rate uh this year um we probably wouldn't see and i i do think again like if if the red bulls finish those races uh unmolested 
these are much less dynamic races and the conversation is uh, less interesting about them. If signs doesn't have a curse weekend, I think the action toward the front of that race is right. much less interesting. Like I think there's a pretty clear sort happening near the front of the field that hasn't been able to drag down the racing overall because there, for whatever reason, there's enough chaos element around this season uh, with the new technical regulations that it is reshuffling things. I do think, however, that with the closer following, I think we are seeing more good racing. I think we're seeing more sustained uh, battles where guys can remain in in close contention. And I think that's going to I think that will win out over end uh, in in the end. I think that'll generate some good racing. Mm. I do think maybe a rocky start to the early season is being uh, born aloft by some of these uh, improbable events that, that keep throwing spanners in the works. Rob, since yeah, you mean- I, 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 sorry, I agree with Scott. I, I, I guess what I was saying was that there is a, I separate what a good race was yeah. against what a, what a fun to watch race was. Like I see the difference, um, and yeah, there are, and I, I agree with Rob said where a lot of what we're seeing. We actually have an email about it later, so I don't want to get too much into it. But a lot of what we're seeing as well is that like some of the more interesting racing is actually happening in parts that maybe we're not seeing as well. Um, yeah, and I wanted to know. Rob, since you've been watching for longer than than I have, um, do you think that there is nowadays more of a focus on the midfield where uh, racing oh, is man, occurring? Dude. I I, I yes. went back and watched a, a few races from the '90s, and man, it is just here's a camera shot of the leader. So yeah, I my if memory serves. There's a couple things. Mid '90s, I don't think F1 was producing their own races. I think they were working with local broadcasters to so like the world feed. I think was being generated by local broadcasters who were carrying the race in their market, and then everyone else was doing commentary over it. I think that's how it worked. Maybe that is wrong. If I'm wrong, uh, please correct me. But the reason this sticks out in my mind was because like if you watched like a Brazilian race. You yeah. would see fucking Brazilian drivers like at a endlessly. Like if if nothing is happening elsewhere, you'll be sh- you'll be shown a Brazilian driver. And actually, Brazil wasn't even the worst because like that is a racing mad market. So like they cared about more of the more of the racers. But like it would really be striking at some at some of these markets where uh, the hometown driver, the hometown hero, got like tons of coverage, and you'd miss stuff because uh, the the Homer Broadcasting uh, team would be making these choices. Uh, but in in absence of that, Drew, I think I think one hundred percent there was they would happily just show a McLaren or Ferrari going around alone on the track, uh, and you you had no idea what was happening. Uh, positions like you know four through eighteen, you just n- zero clue. Uh, so I think they've gotten better about that. I think they they sh- they showcase what's happening much more. Uh, yeah. Uh, will I take this next one? We keep sure. going <laughs> to that point. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah. No, I I was just yeah. I I didn't think else to say, but then realized maybe Drew did. Um, but let's move on to Charlie's email. Charlie says thanks for the podcast once again. One of my highlights of the race week, um, he really likes sprint qualifying. Sorry, sprint session. Um, I meant to email after the first race, but kept forgetting, as I've been pondering the same question during every race since. Why are DRS detection lines a corner before the actual DRS zones? Why not a line marking the start of the DRS zone itself? Um, so there are two main reasons for this. First of all, it's not always the corner before. Oftentimes it is two corners before. 
Um, and there are two reasons for this. So one, uh, the drivers themselves have to instigate the DRS uh, themselves so they know if they have DRS coming up to the line and then they press the button to engage it um, which they're not able to do prior to that I believe I think at Quali they're, they've got free access to it but I'm not sure if they're actually allowed to for much of the rest of the race I'm not quite sure actually but um, the so if it was if the line was the same line it would be a little bit messy because they'd know they got DRS at the same time they were meant to press the button and that sort of seems like maybe bad but the main main reason is because of the concertina effect so the cars themselves when they're following are not always the exact same amount of time apart because of the ways in which um braking zones and deceleration and acceleration work you'll have cars closer to each other in uh you know in faster parts they're maybe like further apart but they compress when they get down to the turns and then they extend again in terms of distance but also in terms of um uh, uh time as well so the drs detection points are put in places where the cars are sort of at, they're within their like braking curve they're not this they're not going flat out so it's not oftentimes it, I'm, earlier i remember there were drs detection zones in places there where the cars were going a lot faster now it seems like they're always a little bit tighter to the turns um whereas if you so it's basically a way to i guess discourage them throwing themselves super deep into turns but mostly to try and get a fair and accurate representation of what the gap is between the cars so uh that's why they're where they are if you had it say for instance in a tight to like a little chicane at the end of a lap if you had it before the first uh the 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 final turn maybe that is an artificial little place where the gap can get can get closed up by one of the cars much more easily by throwing themselves down or or just because of the concertina effect itself where the cars get a little bit closer to each other and the time just sinks just that little bit um but also uh so putting it before the the term before that is why they have it in a much more fair position and then i think ultimately why they don't have it um at the i guess acceleration point of a, of a start is because again it creates a sort of a false economy of how what the distance is between the two cars because of the uh, rate at which they're accelerating uh, one of them is like starting to accelerate before the other one's starting to accelerate the other one's braking at the end of the straight before the other one's braking that's what the how the concertina happens so i think if you had it on the drs zone itself on the line itself it would create this weird false economy of what the time is but also i think it's just a little bit messier the drivers knowing they have drs allows them to sort of approach that ultimate corner maybe in a in a better way i do wonder if the drs detection games are going to change how they end up deploying this like i don't think they're gonna get rid of deep drs but i do think like maybe it's mostly a jetta issue it's so specific there but i, I but even though because charles was using it at bahrain uh and this and Imola is this is kind of the same as jetta it's it's got that yeah. you know the final turn is another one of these i do wonder if in like, coming years they end up going to like an aggregate thing uh, of like if you were average over the last lap uh, within X, maybe they do it. Because uh, yeah, right now the fact that you have this little line that you, like there can be an incentive to mess with it. Um, I I feel like you know it's like one of those things where like once something enters the meta, it will be exploited <laughs> until it is patched out. Yeah, and I You're do right. I it do totally think is. like it's silly. But it rewards drivers for, like, manipulating the DRS line. And unless race control is going to, like, issue some sort of patch, like, hotfix this year, <laughs> I I, th- I think that I, I do think the DRS detection uh, thing might end up being tweaked. Because, 
you can't have the 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 real canary was the the break check incident last year um you know and and then uh we we see it being exploited more this year but i i think they may have to change it yeah i agree and sorry last one from rob Uh, Rob not this rob different rob (laughs) rob says hey gang love the podcast thank you rob australia is notorious for poor racing wow shots fired uh, I'm assuming Rob Zealand, means like, fucked the track. first. No, yeah. <laughs> talking about the track, folks. Yeah. Uh, however, produced 34 overtakes with the new regulations, uh, but only 20 were visible on the broadcast. Why does a cutaway to a DNF driver walking off the track serve the narrative of a race better than contemporaneous on-track action? Uh, that's a question for the race or the broadcast director. Um, but I, I, mm, this is tricky. There's a part of me that wants formula one red zone Mm. where I see every overtake. Right. Um, and I think, I think the, the driver walking back does, they, they often linger on it maybe too long. Um, or, or they cut to stuff that like is is a foregone conclusion. Like, yes, we know he is being wheeled into the garage because we just heard the radio message saying to retire. We don't need all of that footage, right? Um, and a lot of times that stuff can be shown in replay. I totally agree. But I do think there is a utility for a lot of that kind of color um, to tell the narrative of the the race itself. 20 visible for 34 total overtakes, more than half. I'd say that's pretty good. It could probably be better. Um, but that that doesn't make me angry. I don't know. What do you guys think? Danny? I, I, f- I feel like the I feel like it's come up a couple of times. Um in the first two races I brought up, I think, that I've thought that the race direction was kind of like didn't really know what to do with these new cars a little bit Mm. where it wasn't it's kind of like old dog new tricks kind of situation where the type of racing we had in the past is not they're sort of trained to show that and now that there's much more dynamic racing happening around the field that maybe they need to shake up some of the direction stuff that said i do think if we showed every overtake overtakes would become less meaningful i think there is there's an artistry to showing sports sometimes it's not all sports because a lot of sports everything's on show at the same time but there are certain sports like motor racing where the pacing of the viewing experience is basically dictated by the director almost like a dj where they are sort of like communicating this thing to you um via their perspective and things get exciting because of the sort of dance between the directors and the commentators. And there are certain narratives that build throughout a race. And if it, it would be tricky to just like constantly be cutting away to these maybe more arbitrary overtakes because a lot of these are happening from like 11th down as well. Maybe they're not that important. Maybe it's not somebody who's going to like get up into the points. Like if it's somebody who's like Albon, right, trying to get into 10th, like that type of thing. Absolutely. But if it's, you know, something else going on back there, maybe it's not that important. Um, so so I, I I agree, I think, with Rob, uh, the emailer on this, but also I think that there is a utility to not showing every overtake as well. Yeah, I, like not every overtake's a banger. Like 
to be very clear, like a bunch of them are people out of position, uh, getting passed, uh, and, and such. Uh, I, and I, I will also note that even on the pit lane channel, if you watch that, uh, version of the race, so they do multi-cam, uh, multi-frame setups, uh, to showcase more of the racing, but even then they tend to focus on one duel happening at a time. It's very rare that they've got like, uh, cameras checking in on two different, um, you know, battles happening at two different places. I think because, uh, in general, like you, to your point about storytelling, Danny, just because you can explode the producer view onto the screen and like let people see more doesn't mean that dramatizes things more effectively. And so you do have to try to figure out like, you know, if you just show one car passing another, uh, that can be really out of context and really jarring. So I think the artistry is kind of identifying where there's, where, where is there an interesting battle taking shape uh, to, for position. I do think they're missing a bit in like the mid pack and like the non points paying positions. Um, and I do care about that stuff. Uh, even if points aren't on the line, because this is kind of like, this is where a lot of like marginal drivers are scrapping it out to see if like they will get time uh, and a shot at a better opportunity. But like, I'll give you an example in Australia. It really jumped out at me. Albin's tire change uh, with Guan Yu Zhou uh coming up uh behind him it was really tense uh that that gap came down to like less than three tenths i think oh wow uh, on the exit it would have been a cool thing to see um but we didn't because like it's the end of the race and they always cut to showing the leader sort of uh you know doing their not even victory lap but just sort of coasting to the checkered um and I, I think stuff like that is kind of a bummer uh, to miss be, because like when you have a case of a off the wall strategy, finding literally the smallest window to pull out an improbable uh, turnaround on a weekend, that's probably something that like producers, I think, probably should be looking for more opportunities to showcase. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for emails. Uh, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Shift F1 Podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Danny O'Dwyer and at Rob Zachney. That's us around the internet. Should we take it around the world, Danny? Let's race around the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of racing this weekend. The World Rally Championship is in Croatia Ooh. this weekend, starting on Thursday. Uh, the World Superbike Championship is in Assen, the Netherlands. Uh, we've awesome. got Formula 2 and Formula 3 joining Formula 1 this weekend in Imola. Uh, the NASCAR Xfinity Series is racing at Talladega in the A... the Not AG, I'm going with Ag Pro 300. Uh, Motocross Grand Prix is in Latvia. Uh, MotoGP is in Portugal. We're everywhere, man. Look at this. Yeah. Um... Super Formula is at Suzuka in Inuocho. <gasps> Suzukashi, oh. Mie Prefecture. Oh, classic. Love Mie. Top three prefectures. Mm-hmm. And we got NASCAR. Oh, my. What prefecture are we in this? Uh, the this Talladega race? Prefecture. Talladega Prefecture, my favorite. For the Geico <laughs> 500. Love that lizard. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the, 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 the furry, what do you call it when the prefectures the have the mascot? Yeah, yeah. the Gakko lizards, the Talladega mascot. Waving 
Yep, waving at you. Dancing, laughing with the children. Giving out balloons. <laughs> uh, and we got Formula One. Maybe you've heard of it. A sprint weekend. Caution. Sprint weekend. <laughs> Friday, April 22nd is when things kick off. Free practice 1, 7.30 a.m. Eastern time on ESPN2. And then qualifying at 11 a.m. Also on ESPN2. Uh, Saturday, April 23rd. Free practice 2 is at 6.30 a.m. on ESPN2. And then the sprint session at 10.30 a.m. on ESPN. Good stuff. Beautiful. I'm I'm eating my Rice Krispies watching it already. There we go. Yeah. Sunday, however, a little earlier, April 24th, the race. The the real race. The race race. 9 a.m. Eastern time on ESPN. Ooh. That's a little early for us over here, Drew. Yeah, I know. 6 a.m. Enjoy, yeah. Rob. <laughs> yeah, you jerk. <laughs> With your son. Uh, final thoughts, Danny? Uh, I did real question mark over this one. Could be, it yeah. could be a real bummer of a weekend or maybe maybe the the you know, maybe we get just shockloads of overtaking on that on that uh start finish and and maybe that's enough for it to be a good race it's we'll have to ask ourselves that question again of what makes a good race so yeah let's wait and see rob yeah i think the thing i remember is when imola came back it was sort of striking that it's a cool track even if it's not presenting a ton of overtaking opportunities it's a place that showcases the technique and the craft of driving um and so i'm i'm sort of keen to see whether that holds up uh, especially with these newer cars but i am also kind of hoping that the new regulations can make a place like imola a little more dynamic uh than it has been all right uh well if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and our official discord you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift f1 have a good race weekend everyone we will see you all next week Meow.